Will you turn with me to the scripture on which today's teaching is based? It comes from Psalm chapter 126. It's a a song of the sense. Psalm 126. It's only six verses. Allow me to read. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. And this is God's word. Psalms teach us important truths about how to pray. In the past month, we've been looking at a few psalms, just a few psalms, that teach us what it means to look to God in times when it's easy to fall into self-pity, when you're isolated because of circumstances, or you're uh, in a a season of anxiety uh, when it feels like there's just no relief. And today's psalm is incredibly helpful, incredibly helpful. They give us a north, it gives us a north star when we're grieving, when we're in tears, when there's sorrow, sadness in our lives. And it's going to teach us three things. One, it teaches us how to cry. Two, how to pray when we cry. And lastly, how to hope when we cry. How to cry, how to pray when we cry, and how to hope in our prayers when we cry. First, we're going to look at how to cry. What's the context? We don't really know what the context is, um, but that's good because it means that you can apply this psalm very, very broadly anytime you're sad, anytime you're in deep sadness. Verse 1, when the Lord brought back captives, the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. It almost seems like the author is actually looking at something specific, but the reality is we don't really know what that is because verse 1 could have been pointed to a number of references, a number of moments in history The author is incredibly intentional in being vague so that this psalm can be applied broadly. Verses 1 to 3, I'm going to give you the structure now. Very simple. Verses 1 to 3, we see a time of great joy. Verse 4, we see the prayer because that joy has been lost. Verses 5 to 6, there's a promise and a hope in the midst of weeping and tears that really comes out uh, as a residue of of hope in prayer. Now, verse 1, there's this experience that the psalmist is talking about. This is rescue, a time when the Lord had delivered his people. And the author says, we were like men who dreamed. It was like we dreamed. It was like it was all a dream. Verse 2, we laughed, we sang. And the world knew that the Lord had done great things for us. He repeats that. There's almost this emotional experience as he's laying out the psalm. Verse 3, we were filled with joy, but that was then. That was then. It was like a dream. Now there are tears. Something or someone has brought them to mourning. Now, let me take a break here and talk to you for a second like a father. If, if you were my child, if you were my son... Someday I would sit you down, especially when you're crying, when you're in tears, and when you're in deep sadness, and I would tell you that life is oftentimes bookended by joy and pain. 
right? Joy and pain. There's laughter and then there's sadness. There are movements of laughter, movements of joy, but there are also movements of mourning and tears. Sometimes you live through verses 1 to 3, celebration and joy. It's a fact of life. Like the first time that I found out that my wife was pregnant. Years ago, I'd say about five years ago, when I first found out my wife was pregnant. Other times then, you live through verses 5 and 6. Incredible pain, incredible tears. Like the six and seven weeks after, when we couldn't find a heartbeat and we had triplets. This psalm doesn't end in tears. It ends in hope. It ends in promise. What does that mean? For a Christian, no matter your tragedy, no matter uh, your circumstances, God has not abandoned you. God has not forgotten about you. There's a promise. This psalm wasn't written in case God uh, may forget about you to remind God to remember you. In the midst of sadness or failure or sin or brokenness, this psalm was written so that you would not forget about God in the midst of sadness or failure or sin or brokenness. A lot of us, um, some of us right now are in a movement of joy, celebration, other people in a movement of sadness. And it's always easy in either side to forget about God. Not just forget about who he is, but forget him altogether. This psalm reminds Christians that there is an undercurrent of joy that can never be snuffed out by any type of grief in your life. Not because you'll never suffer again. You will suffer. But this author is experiencing joy in the sorrow, joy through the sorrow because he trusts in the promise. We don't know if this prayer was answered. We don't know how long it took for this prayer to be answered. But this author is experiencing a joy that goes beyond the circumstance, beyond the situation, because he is simply trusting in the promise. We don't see the epilogue. We don't know what happened at the end. But there's this real joy and sorrow because of the promise, this lasting hope. On the one hand, a Christian never, never denigrates the suffering, never waves off sorrow. Christians don't just buck up. You know, one of the things that are really annoying for me in the church, especially when I talk to Christians, is, is when I ask them how they're doing, because I know they're having a tough time, and they sit there and they tell me it's all good, and, and they try to give me that straight face and the Christian thing to say when you're talking to your pastor. It's super annoying. It's super annoying to me. I'm just kind of just venting a little bit to tell you this. In the Western world, we're taught to hold back our tears. We're taught to, to calm ourselves, to hold back weakness, to internalize sorrow. But not in the Psalms. Not in the Psalms. Not ever in the Psalms. And certainly not in this Psalm. Not in this context where this Psalm was written. In the Near East, you externalized your emotions. Verse 5, it says, you sow in tears. In other words, you're going to cry. You're going to mourn. Christians empathize with others because they understand that even beyond, there's a sadness beyond the sadness. In any brokenness you see, there's a sadness that goes deeper than the sadness. It's almost like there's a curse in the land ever since the Garden of Eden. And because of that curse, it's as if that curse has entered into every realm of our lives. And so there's not just a topical layer of brokenness, there's a subterranean layer of brokenness as well. There's a curse. There's a brokenness. 
Christians understand that. Christians empathize that. Only Christians. But on the other hand, a Christian never lets tears, their tears, their mourning, overshadow that reality. Because they know that even beyond that reality, there's an even deeper reality, a more real reality. God is present. God hears. God has heard our deepest sighs, our deepest cries. And we see that in the coming of Jesus. And so a Christian never lets tears overtake their hope, their joy. Revelation 21 says, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. There is a hope. There is a promise. There is an already in that we are saved. A Christian knows that God, Jesus has come to break that curse has broken the curse once and for all, and yet there's a not-yet reality that is coming, a hope, a deeper reality that goes beyond anything that is visible. And that promise, because of a resurrected Jesus, because of that reality, the tears will never overtake that reality. A Christian, on one hand, never gives just pat answers, cold comfort, you know, Bible verses, spits out Bible verses, as if like there's something magical or there's some incantation there in those verses. You sound fake when you do that. You know that? You sound fake when you do that. Right? A Christian understands that the world is a dangerous place. The world is a sad and broken place. There's real pain. A Christian understands that. And that pain is real. It is isolating. But... Only a Christian can say that the story isn't over. Only a Christian can truly say that there is a joy that can run thick and deeper through that pain. And so Christians demonstrate trust in the suffering, a trust that leads to a joy even though while they're waiting for prayers to be answered, even though the prayers haven't been answered, there is a joy because there is a hope, because there is a trust. Now, pastor, I thought that Christians aren't supposed to be sad. It's one of the worst misconceptions. No one understands sadness. No one understands sadness the way a Christian understands. No one understands weeping and crying the way a Christian would understand it because they understand the world being filled with pain and why the brokenness that has caused that pain, the sin that has caused that brokenness. You see that? And look, Jesus Christ wept. Jesus wept. He's standing before Lazarus, his friend, who had passed, who had died. And standing before the grave, standing before death itself, Jesus Christ, the wisest, most powerful man that ever walked the earth. And if he wept, he was called a man of sorrows. It means it's okay to weep. It's okay to cry. I mean, Jesus didn't weep because he was weak. He didn't weep because he was emo. He wept because he was perfect. He was a true man. Truest to the design of a man. In other words, yes, Jesus experienced deep sadness. But even on the cross, while he was utterly suffering on the cross, there was a foundation of joy that enabled him to endure. Psalm chapter 126 teaches us what? That you can cry. Verses 1 to 3, you can dream about what happened and you can cry, but in a way that leads you to trust, in a, lead, in a way that gives you vision, in a way that leads to joy. Verses 5 to 6.
Now, how do you pray when you're sad? How do you pray when you're in sorrow? Verse 4 is the prayer, restore our fortunes like the streams of the Negev. The psalmist recalls this time of great joy when the Lord demonstrated great power before the world. The whole world was able to acknowledge this and he redeemed his people, delivered his people. And he says, like the streams of the Negev, right now I'm, in, I'm just dry and parched. I'm like the streams of the Negev, empty and dry and parched. Restore the fortunes. You know what that is? The Negev was this desert land, this barren land, this dry riverbeds most of the time throughout the year. You ever been to a desert? In a desert area, the land could be dry and just completely lifeless and parched. But once in a while, there's a storm that comes. And when that storm comes from the distance, you can hear that storm because it's usually empty and barren. You can hear that storm coming. You can see that storm coming. And what happens is in an instant, because the storm is just, just water just pouring out. In that downpour, you hear a roar and a thunder. It's not thunder. What it is, it's the water filling those dry riverbeds and just rushing down like an avalanche. That's what's happening. You see? Things become lush. They say that you can literally see life appearing. You know, you can see it with your own eyes. Things become lush. They become green in an instant. The psalmist is praying just like that. Restore us. You have the power to do that. Just like that. Because I am dry. This thing has sucked my energy. I'm dry and I'm parched and I'm weeping. Restore us like that. Everything's been lost. In an instant, I know you can. Just, the way, just like the way you did back then in that day where everybody saw, everybody saw that this was by your hand. Will you undo the dryness? Will you undo the brokenness? I know you can. This is an intimate prayer. This psalmist is intimately talking to God. He's saying, I know that you love your people. I know that in your love for your people, you've done this before. This is the pattern of the way that you work. You deliver, you rescue, you save. This is how you work. Will you do that again? Will you restore us again? Redeem us again? This prayer implies that something where someone has captivated these people. And he's saying, we need your rescue again. How do you pray? Three things. One, it's amazing what you get from like one line. You pray remembering and appealing to God's pattern. His love for his people. You pray in accordance to, you pray in accordance with the mission of God, the glory of God. So first, you pray appealing to God's love. You pray appealing to God's pattern of the way he demonstrates that love. And then two, verse two says, we laughed, we sang, there was joy. And then they said, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, the psalmist says. He's praying that the provision of God, what we're praying for, is tied to the mission of God that his glory would advance and that glory would be accomplished through this answered prayer. A lot of times we pray for things that have nothing to do with the mission of God, nothing to do with the glory of God, that it be advanced. It's really more about our mission, our agenda, our glory, what we want accomplished, and we're just going to God for help. 
And when we're about to lose it or when we've lost it, we're in despair. You see, this psalmist is praying and tying God's provision with the mission itself. And so he prays, number three, he prays for restoration. Something's been lost. Something's been broken. And he's praying that the mission of God will be advanced by God renewing and redeeming what's been lost. Remember, this prayer hasn't been answered. We don't know the epilogue. We don't know the ending. Maybe it was answered a while later. Maybe it was answered never. But, or never manner, maybe not in the manner that they hoped. But what you see here is it's in the Bible. That means that God has heard it. Whether he answered it or not, immediately or not, this prayer is more, it focuses on the trust. It focuses on the joy and the hope that comes from trusting in the promise of God. And it shows us that knowing that it hasn't been answered yet, knowing that it may not be answered for a while, just clinging on to the promise and the hope of God's presence, knowing his pattern of love, this psalmist we know is not just coming to God for things, he's coming to God for God. Because we don't know if it's going to get answered. We don't know if that's what God wants. But he's coming to God for God because he knows God will hear and he knows God is a loving God and a faithful God and he can trust that. That's what he's doing. If you're a Christian, what that means is one, one, sorrows, well, how do you, how do you apply that to us? Right? How do you apply that to us? Verses five to six says, if you sow in tears, you will reap song, with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with sheaves. That's bundles, bundles of joy, right? What do you learn from this prayer and then now this, this psalmist, not even knowing what's been answered, just immediately jumps towards hope, a hope that moves him. He says, I'm, 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 I'm crying out and I'm praying. And but there's hope and there's, and there's joy. If you're a Christian, what that means is, number one, your sorrows will ultimately yield to joy. They will fall to joy. Sorrows are temporary, but joy is eternal. That's why it's a foundation. Your sadness is painful. Your sadness is mournful. Your sadnesses are isolating. Sometimes it could be really long, but ultimately, the Bible promises Every sadness has an expiration. Number two, sorrows, they, they don't just one day come to an end and then kind of open the door and usher in joy. That's not what happens. The text is saying here that you, your sorrows are like a seed. Your tears are like seeds that fall to the ground. And what yields, what the ground produces, what it actually produces is joy. In other words, God works through the tears to generate joy. What's the application here? You've got to plant your sorrows. You've got to invest your tears. Don't just cry aimlessly. Don't just cry haphazardly. Don't just, you know, look for ways to, to relieve yourself and comfort yourself. Plant your sorrows with hope. Look to the Lord and plant your sorrows. Look to the Lord and invest your tears there. Like a crop in season, they will produce the harvest of joy. What does that mean? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal, an eternal weight of glory. In other words, sorrow doesn't just pave the path for joy. Uh, this too shall pass. We say that, right? 
our sorrows. We all have deep sorrows, deep sadnesses. But even though in some cases they will change the course of your present life, I mean, they are big, you never denigrate that, God is putting them all to work. God, you think your sorrows have enslaved you. God has actually enslaved your sorrows. They are, he's putting them to work for you so that they will generate and produce joy. If you're a chemist or biologist, you would understand that sorrows are like the intermediary, right, that leads to joy as the end product. They don't own you. They don't need to own you. Don't live your life patternistically around suffering. Live your life patternistically around promise. What's the promise? Verse 5 and 6 is the promise. Two times the author says, he emphasizes. He says what? If you sow in tears, you will reap joy. If you leave in tears, you will return with joy. And so that means you've got to invest in You invest them. How do you invest them? That's what prayer is. Prayer in tears is the investment, the seed of hope that springs up in joy. You trust that the Lord will bring fruit through this brokenness. I don't know when it's going to end. I don't know if it's going to end. Not in this lifetime. But I trust that the Lord will bring fruit through brokenness. And if there, as the Spirit of God works in you to trust, it will spring up. You will return with joy as the foundation and the undercurrent of every sadness in your life. You see, the Bible on one hand never denigrates what's going, what you're going through. And some of you, you've been suffering for a long time. Maybe it's just this season that we're in, and it's a dark season. Lots of tears have been shed. Lots of tears. The psalmist is saying this, those tears are real, but don't just collect them and pour them out and collect them and waste them. Invest them. Invest them in prayer to the Lord. Another, on the other hand, you look around and you see that there are people who are actually pulling through on their end. They're pulling out of their suffering, but not you. Your suffering hasn't ended. The psalmist is saying one day there will be a joy for you too. That's the promise. Revelation 21, one day Jesus himself will come and he will wipe every tear from your eyes. That's the promise. So don't waste your tears. Don't just scatter them aimlessly. Invest them into the hope, not a temporal relief, but the ultimate relief and redemption that has been won to you, won for you by Jesus. What allows the author to have this kind of confidence? To sit there and say in one movement, I am in weeping and mourning and I'm in deep sorrow. Deep sorrow. To the point where the joy was just a dream. And yet he says, but I will come back and there will be joy. There will be laughter again. What allows him to do that? Verse 4, he says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. We are held captive. Free us, O Lord. There are many words throughout the ancient times to refer to God. Words like Elohim, Adonai, El Shaddai. The more general words for God that speak to his power or speak to his character. But for those of us who had a deep relationship with God, For those in the Bible and the Old Testament who had a personal relationship with God, they always refer to him with a very special name, which is often translated in your Bibles, in all caps, the word Lord. It's a covenantal word, a name that was reserved only between God and his people. 
Only for the people that, he, that belonged to him. It was his way, just even in his name, to explain that he would never abandon you. And you see that throughout a history, throughout his pattern, throughout the Old Testament in the Bible, through every sin and every failure, every sin, every, every rebellion, every brokenness, he is Yahweh, he is Lord, and he will redeem. Now, if you don't trust that, you will never grow in poise. You will never grow in hope. But if you're a Christian, you know, you know that you are loved by God. You know that he would never abandon you. You know that the ultimate suffering that you deserve has already been paid for by Jesus, and so God is not entering suffering in your life to punish you. And so he's not, if he's allowing the suffering and he's not, he's not using that suffering to punish you, then as a wise God and a faithful God and a loving God, he must be using that, he must be using that suffering to grow you and to mature you, to make you like his child. That's what he's doing. Can you trust that? Because if you trust that, it will lead you to joy. How does it lead you to joy? God sent his own son, his treasure, to die for you. That means you are his treasure. I mean, you may doubt that God loves you, but you would never doubt that God loved his own son. And where did he send his son? He sent his son to die on the cross. That means that when God sees you, Jesus took your place. When God sees you, you know that on the cross, Jesus took everything that you deserve so that you could have everything he deserves. When God sees you, he sees your helplessness. The way a father sees a dying child, a sick child. And what does he say? In that moment, in seeing the child suffering, he's withering away. What does he say? I would do anything to take that sickness away. I would take it on myself. And he did. He did that. And so Jesus Christ is looking at the grave of Lazarus. And he's looking at his friend in the grave. And he sees the work of sin, and he sees the work of death, and what does he do? He weeps. In fact, twice the text says that he wept, and then once again he was deeply moved. He was just continuously weeping, especially because people around him were critiquing, does he really love his friend? Because he could have helped his friend. And so he's weeping, but then he prays, and it looks into the prayer. He says, Father, there's intimacy there. There's the intimacy. I thank you that you heard me. In other words, there's hope there. He says, I know that you always hear me. There's the pattern there that he's recognizing. And he says, but I'm saying this for the benefit of the people that they may believe. There is the mission there. Jesus prays with intimacy. He prays with acknowledging the pattern of God, the wisdom of God. And he acknowledges, he acknowledges the mission of God knowing what he's about to do. In sadness, Jesus wept, but he prayed appealing to God's love and his mission. He ties it together with great trust and hope in the midst of just extreme tears. And he pulls Lazarus out of the grave. There's great joy. He pulls Lazarus out of the grave because soon after he knows he will be entering into the grave. I will do anything to take that, that ultimate suffering away. And so he did. He entered into the grave and took our place. Jesus Christ invested his tears, looking forward into the greater joy, because, you know, Lazarus will die again. I mean, coming back to life, what does that do? I mean, he's just going to pay more taxes, right? He's going to get into more arguments with people, right? And everyone, everywhere he goes, I thought you were dead, you know? Like, like that's how it's going to be, right? Every, for the rest of his life, 
Remember that time when you died, right? That's what he's going to suffer for the rest of his life. Jesus was looking forward to the ultimate, the ultimate suffering and the ultimate redemption. And so when he's in Gethsemane, he's suffering in Gethsemane. It's as if he already, he's dying before he goes to the cross. He's suffering. He says, Lord, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of wrath that we suffered for our, that we taken for our sins. But then he says, not my will, yours be done. He's always focused on the mission. He's looking at the love of God and tying it with the mission of God, his love for you, his love for his people. And he trusted the Lord. He trusted even in the deepest sadness, knowing what would happen to him. He says, I'm overwhelmed with what? Sorrow to the point of death. So that every sorrow that we experience will not lead us to ultimate ruin or destruction because the one sorrow that could lead us to ultimate ruin and destruction, Jesus Christ already took it on the cross and he died. God didn't answer that prayer. God said no. And so on the cross he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, that's the doublet, my God, my God, that there's, there's emotional language there. Whenever you see the doublet in Hebrew literature, you see that emotional language. He's crying and he's weeping on the cross, and God didn't answer. What he's saying is this is the ultimate sadness, the silence of God, the ultimate sadness, being forsaken by God. Why? So that we would be remembered by God. You see, we can appeal to God's love because Jesus Christ was forsaken. And we can trust God is, is working through this, not despite Jesus' tears and his suffering and death, but through Jesus' tears and suffering and death to bring about the ultimate salvation for his people. The ultimate salvation for his people. And if God would do that through Jesus, surely God will do that through you. That's what the psalmist was looking to. He wasn't just looking for temporal relief. He says, I want the dream. I want the dream. We were like men who dreamed. He says, even that captivity and freedom, that history that passed, that's how God works. But he's looking to the ultimate rescue from the ultimate brokenness, the ultimate helplessness. That's what gave him hope. The author of Hebrews says, while Jesus Christ is enduring on the cross, he says he endured for the joy set before him. In other words, even while he was on the cross, suffering and bleeding, being rejected by God, there was a foundation and an undercurrent of joy in his life. And God made those sufferings work for our joy. And so Jesus suffered the penalty so that we would get the promise. Jesus suffered the ultimate sadness so that we would get the psalm. Jesus suffered the silence of God so that we could sing. Before you went to God just for, just for things, give me this, give me that. Oh, I didn't get it. Oh, God, God's left me. I don't want to believe in God anymore. When you see the cross and you see that even... Jesus' sadness was not detached from his trust in the Lord. 
And that sadness was not detached from the pattern of God's love demonstrated on the cross. His glory demonstrated on the cross. His mission demonstrated on the cross so that you can trust. Now, if you weep, but there's no undercurrent of joy, then you've forgotten verses 1 to 3. If you weep without joy, there's no dream, right? There's no vision. There's no poise. There's, there's uh, no trust because there's no trust. But if you immediately jump to joy and there's no weeping, then you're not investing. Investing is tough. You're not burying those tears like seeds. You're just hiding them, and then your heart's going to rot. Your heart's going to turn to stone. But if you remember and you see Jesus Christ weeping on the cross for you, and yet joyful on the cross for you, then you know the wisdom of God and the love of God and the faithfulness of God and the power of God, and you can trust that God is willing to sacrifice his own son for you. The promise is for you. Don't just cry. Look to God. Look to Jesus with real prayers, but prayers that will generate trust in the promise of God. That's how you pray with tears. That's how you pray with tears. Will you join me in prayer?